Thank you for listening to Weekly Wisdom, the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Haddonfield, New Jersey. This episode is a sermon by Reverend Nikki Vasante titled The Great Setup. It's based on Genesis chapter 45, the story of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers. In this wonderful sermon, Reverend Vasante touches on the varieties of grief we experience, on the Hebrew concept of shalom or well-being, and above all, on the topic of reconciliation. She argues that all of our setbacks in life are setups for a comeback set up by God. We hope that you'll enjoy this. Two traveling angels stopped to spend a night in the home of a wealthy family. The family was rude and refused to let the angels stay in the mansion's guest room. Instead, the angels were given a small space in the cold basement. As they made their bed on a hard floor, the older angel saw a hole in the wall and repaired it. And when the younger angel asked why, the older angel replied, things aren't always what they seem. The next night, the pair came to the rest at the house of a very poor but very hospitable farmer and his wife. After sharing the little food they had, the couple let the angels sleep in their bed where they could have a good night's rest. When the sun came up the next morning, the angels found Farmer and his wife in tears. Their only cow, whose milk had been their sole income, lay dead in the field. The younger angel was infuriated and asked the older angel, how could you have let this happen? The first man had everything, yet you helped him, the angel accused. The second family had little, but was willing to share everything, and you let the cow die. Things aren't always what they seem, the older angel replied. When we stayed in the basement of the mansion, I noticed there was gold stored in the hole in that wall. Since the owner was so obsessed with greed and unwilling to share, I sealed the wall so we wouldn't find it. Then last night, as we slept in the farmer's bed, the angel of death came for his wife. I gave him the cow instead. Things aren't always what they seem. This week we see a very different Joseph from last. Because of his wisdom and dream interpretation, along with practical wisdom as a gift from God and his own hard-won experience, Joseph has ascended to become the governor of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. In verse 44 of chapter 41, chapters prior, we hear, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt, only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. This is a breathtaking statement for a Pharaoh to make to a former slave and prisoner. Here in Joseph is a courtier so wise, handsome, trustworthy with money, virtuous in the presence of seduction, and prudent in his advice that he can rise to the number two position in the superpower of Egypt. Yes, he may have to take off his beautiful multicolored robe, but imagine the finery of being second in command of Egypt, one of the greatest kingdoms of the world, if you will, perhaps, perhaps second only to Rome. The scripture says that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. This Joseph looks much different than the one we saw last week. He tattles on his brothers and dreams of world dominance 
and domination over his entire family, and yet, that's precisely what has happened. We see a world leader managing with success the grinding reality of a famine as it surges on, the exact stuff that Joseph's dreams were made of. It's the economics of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression all wrapped up into one, and his brothers have come to his house looking for food. It has been well over 20 years since they threw him in a pit. I'm not going to digress into the little bit of Shakespearean drama that plays out during the story. There's hidden identity and a bit of a ruse. Joseph recognizes his brothers when they come down to see him, but conceals his identity and devises a scheme to test their loyalty, like father, like son, right? No reasons given for the test. Joseph just does it because he can. That aside, there are just two threads that I want to pull out from the story today, two hidden contours to the scripture that I want to expose for you. Joseph is emotional. That might not be obvious to you upon the hearing of this passage. Joseph is emotional, and it's not really a hidden contour. It's actually all over the place. So much so it's disruptive. Not just here, but throughout the entire story. In chapter 42, verse 24, while Joseph is disguised, he has a conversation with his brother, brothers, and he has to turn around and he starts weeping because he hears their heedlessness. He says he turns away from them and he wept. And then in chapter 43, in another conversation he has with his brothers, while he's in disguise, because he's got this whole game going on, he recognizes Benjamin, his mother's other son. And it says in verse 30, with that, Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with affection for his brother, and he was about to weep, so he went into a private room and wept there. This verse in the Bible is one of the rarest descriptions of inner emotions that can be found anywhere, with the exception of Song of Solomon, perhaps. But we hear that Joseph could not control himself emotionally, and today he weeps so loudly, they hear him in the other room. It says that loudly all of the Egyptians hear it and the entire household of the Pharaoh heard it. So I'm going to digress and say something especially to my brothers in Christ out there. To you men out here who are in pain, take your example from a world leader who felt things. Remember, Scripture just doesn't tell us what happened. It tells us what is happening now. There is wisdom in wounds. We can weep. We need to understand this, and not only understand it, but try to embrace it. In fact, run towards it. Because, folks, when we build walls, we not only keep the bad stuff out, we keep the good stuff out as well. And so I'm going to take a risk and ask you all a question. And I'm, I'm asking for responses. What do you think Joseph was weeping over? And let's be brief. What do you think Joseph was weeping over? Becky? Rejection and the joy. Rejection and the joy. Anyone else? 
lost years. Donna, thank you. I've heard what I'm going to say in both of those answers. What I think Joseph was weeping over is grief. And I want to take a few minutes and talk about that. I want to take a few minutes and talk about it because so many of us have experienced it over the past several years because of the pandemic, but newsflash, we're going to continue to experience it because death is as much part of life as anything else. As I tell my friends, we're all on a one-way ticket. Grief is part of life and it's a joy because grief is the proof that we have loved. And it cannot be sidestepped. It must be endured. And I believe that it changes you. And what I want to say to you today is that everybody grieves differently. It is as normal as our fingerprint. Every fingerprint is unique. I once spent time with a woman who, after her spouse died, she did not leave her house for three years. None of us saw that coming. None of us in death, but her reaction to it. To say that I was frustrated, others around her were frustrated, yes. Then there are those that get remarried in six months after a spouse dies. I've already told my husband if he does that, I will haunt him for the rest of his days and his new wife. <laughs> Some individuals will clean out their spouse's closet within a week. Others will leave it for the remainder of days. As I've said to you in a sermon somewhere, there is no normal. Normal is just a setting on a dryer. Grief doesn't just come with the death of a person. Grief comes over the death of a relationship that will never be. We grieve when someone dies in our lives because we will never have that relationship that we hoped for so much. All of us have had different family experiences, but some of our most common shared experiences include closeness and fusion with some members of our family, right, our favorite sister, while alienation and separation from other members of our family. Most, if not all of us, have this sense of both being inside our family and at other times being outside. And there are those of us who will admit it, that are able to admit it, that we all share in those repeated attempts to reconcile our lived reality with the utopian concept of family life that exists nowhere truthfully within our imagination. It's not uncommon on the death of a parent, you will hear during the visitation, calling hour, whatever they call it in whatever part of the country you are in, you will hear wonderful stories about said parent, and I will always hear from the children, who was that person that they were describing? I imagine Joseph to be weeping over the relationship he never had. This was 20 years without a father who loved him, showered affection upon him, 20 years without his brothers, without the joy of playing, without the joy of learning lessons together. You know, I mean, at his core, he is grieving over what he is missing. I mean, here is a man, friends, with his feet in two worlds. Disguised from his kin, here is a Hebrew who rules over Egyptians, but yet cannot eat with the Egyptians. It is an abomination for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. The moral of the story is this. Whether it's been 20 years or 50 or 5, 
there is something wordless, formless, that pulls us toward our families. The moral of the story is family life is filled with pain, and yet we are drawn to one another beyond our understanding. And this is the second thread I want to pull out for you. And what draws us is this formless, wordless sense of shalom. Maybe you have heard the word shalom before. We pray for Hawaii. It is much like the term aloha, which is used as both a hello and a goodbye. Shalom is most commonly used as a hello and a goodbye. I have had this sign, which is the Hebrew for shalom, hanging in the doorway of my office for 20 plus years. It is much more than just a greeting or a salutation. It started back in Genesis 29, a generation before, where Jacob goes to a well and he's inquiring about a wife and he asks a simple question, is it well with the Father? This is why scripture is so wonderful. You take a little sentence like that that says, is it well with my father? And you can unpack it into an entirely different universe. What Jacob was really asking was, how is his shalom? When you're asking, how is your shalom? This is not a simple inquiry. It is more than a pleasantry. And it's not merely an inquiry into your health, but into all of the person's life circumstances. The question is designed to feel out the situation. Is the other person's life in order? Are they in a set of right relationships? When we talk about righteousness, in fact, that very word righteousness, when we talk about Christ's righteousness or ours, that word literally translated means right relationships. Righteousness. Are we in right relationships? Part and parcel of the promise of this life is that anyone who wants to get with the program that God has laid out has got to be in a set of right relationships. The theme of Shalom occurs throughout Genesis. In fact, eight of its 18 occurrences occur in the Joseph novella. Shalom is the normal state of affairs in the Old Testament. It is not the angry Hebrew God that we all love to blame for everything. The normal state of affairs in the Old Testament is not enmity, greed, and violence. It is shalom. It is the state in which God created the world. It is that inexplicable desire that exists within us that leaves us unsatisfied, it is given voice in the letter to the Hebrews when the scripture says we desire a better homeland apart from this one. It is that hole in our hearts that we uselessly and relentlessly try to fill with so many things. It is the dis-ease that drives us toward, always toward, the pasture that God has intended for us from the first. Shalom is the central theological concept in the Old Testament. Anything that is not shalom is out of order. It is broken and needs to be fixed. Sin may be a part of our nature, but our drive to be whole is in our blood. It is in our soul and our spirit. Why do you think Jesus says in the New Testament, and I'm going on a tangent, why do you think in the New Testament Jesus tells people your sins are forgiven instead of 
your sickness is healed? Because Christ knows that personal wholeness can be much more powerful than some physical healings. Physical healing may not happen in this life, but spiritual healing can. Now, I'll tell a brief story that I may have told you before, and I want to from the outset say it's okay to laugh. I just want to tell you about when I reconciled with my sister. It's okay to laugh. My sister and I famously did not get along well. My mother is watching us. She's going to laugh so hard she's going to cry. I'll already tell you. I know it. We did not get along. When my sister went terminal, she died in January of 21. I have a friend that I pay. He's a professional. <laughs> and my professional friend told me, Nikki, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go down to Virginia and you're going to apologize to your sister for not being a better sister. And I can't say up here what I said then, but I said, the heck I am. I had a whole laundry list of things that I had to be angry about. And she said it again. She said, Nikki, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go down here and you're going to apologize for not being a better sister. And I thought about this because how many of us can do the same thing? How many of us can apologize for not being a better friend? How many of us can apologize just for not being a better mother, better father, better person? It happens. So Marco and I went down there and Right off the bat, I sat down beside my sister and I said, Jamie, I said, I love you and I just want you to know I'm sorry I wasn't a better sister to you. And she looked at me and she says, Oh, it is what it is. <laughs> and I said, Yeah, it sure is. And we just sat there and kept watching longer as he do. And glory to God, everything just disappeared. In chapter 45 of Joseph's story, Joseph sits down with his brothers and he says, can't we just take off our mask? Can I just take off the disguise? Can I not be the brother that's in the dream coat that my dad favored? Can't we take off our disguise? Can revenge give way to reconciliation? You know, can't we do this? We're brothers. You know, at last, Joseph sees his brothers, and he essentially says to them, it doesn't matter what you've done. This is your home. Tell my father that I'm alive. I am your brother. Do not be angry or distressed. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You know, at last, secrets are disclosed, and divine reconciliation is possible. Divine providence is at work here, seizing upon yet another occasion of human sin to advance the cause of God. Despite our wicked divisions, wherever they may be, there is a unity which is a fact. That in the hands of God, all these setbacks are just setups for a comeback. For God, the ultimate setup is that he has made a promise to a single family that he will make a great nation of them that will multiply them and give them a land. Well, we see that they've multiplied, but the land, the last word of Genesis, my friends, is Egypt. Well, the story is here to remind us, along with the angels and the archangels and the entire company of heaven, 
that things aren't always what they seem. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And amen. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review this podcast so that we can reach more people with the good news of Jesus Christ. To support our ministry, go to www.haddonfieldprez.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the page. Grace and peace be with you.